Hey everyone, welcome to the Forefront Conversations podcast. As always, I am Deacon Jim Rohner, and I am excited to share with you today this interview with Austin Hartke. If you've never heard of Austin before, he is a trans author and executive director of the Transmission Ministry Collective. Most relevant to this conversation, we are speaking to him about the most recent edition of his book, Transforming the Bible and the Lives of Transgender Christians. Uh, but for once, I am not alone in this conversation today. Joining me to converse with Austin is Dee Ang. Dee is a member of the leadership team here at Forefront Church. They are trans and genderqueer, and their insight and life experience is invaluable to this conversation. I can't thank them enough for joining me, and I know that all of you listening are going to be really edified and have a really great time with this conversation. But before we get into the conversation with Austin Hartke, I do just want to take a moment to say that if you have benefited from this podcast and you believe in ushering in a more just and generous expression of the Christian faith, then would you please consider a one-time or recurring gift so that we can continue to offer resources like this podcast. It doesn't matter if you go to Forefront in person, if you attend virtually, or if you've never gone at all. If you have listened to this podcast and it has contributed any type of value to your life, then we just ask that you give a little bit. doesn't matter if it's $5, doesn't matter if it's $500. Anything that you give is going to continue the mission of this podcast and continue the work of ushering a more just and generous expression of the Christian faith. You can do so by going to ForefrontNYC.com slash give, or if you want to give a one-time gift, you can do so on Venmo at FFBK-GIFTS. Thanks for listening. We do hope that you enjoy this conversation, and we do hope we're going to have a lot more great conversations like this in the future. Austin, greatly appreciate you giving the time uh, today. It, it took a, a little bit of back and forth, but I'm glad that we were finally able to get this uh, going on. I do want to get into the specifics of your book in a little bit. Uh, that is Transforming the Bible and the Lives of Transgender Christians. But even before we kind of get into the specifics of that, I want to kind of stop, uh, step back a little bit and just kind of get a little bit of of your story. And if you if you don't mind just kind of sharing um, this this transition, this uh, this identity that that you have now, when did you first kind of start realizing or thinking like, you know, Maybe that maybe maybe the identity I have is not the identity that that I actually am. What what was that journey like for you? When did it kind of start? Mm, yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So my my experience with gender specifically was uh, tied up in my experience with faith. My whole life has been. Um, and so I grew up um, non-denom, evangelical Christian, homeschooling family pretty like socially conservative and uh, kind of isolated as a homeschooling family, part of a homeschooling group. Right. So like that was my background. Um, And I was assigned female at birth. So everybody for the first part of my life, everybody thought I was the oldest sister of three sisters. Um, And my experience of coming to understand more about myself, um, I would say uh, it would be pretty accurate to say, I just didn't have a sense of my gender really at all for the first 10 years of my life. Um, I definitely had expectations placed on me about the idea of like, this is what it's like to be a woman. This is what it's like to be a girl. And like, these are the things you're not allowed to do as a girl. Right. So I definitely had those expectations. Um, but I internally was like, oh, that's, I don't think that's right. Like something feels, this isn't quite it, (laughs) but I didn't have language for it. Um, and so for the first 10 years or so, I was just kind of like, well, everybody thinks this, 
I don't think they're right, but I also don't know if they're I'm not wrong and I don't have any language to explain it anyways. So I just kind of went with it um, <laughs> um, more or less. Uh, I was very excited when I got to get my hair cut the way I wanted to for the first time and got a classic 90s bowl cut. Um, <laughs> um, and so like, you know, I I just kind of felt like a non-gendered being for the first part of my life. And then puberty hit, right? Like pre-adolescence and puberty happened. And suddenly I was like, oh no, something is definitely wrong now. <laughs> um, and that was really the point where it kind of like became more of a going concern, right? Um, so I did what a lot of trans folks do and a lot of queer folks in general do where I was in middle school and early high school when you're experiencing all of that social pressure like middle school sucks for everybody right um <laughs> when I was experiencing all that social pressure I was like you know what I'm so tired of being picked on that I'm just gonna be as femme as possible which for me was not that much um, <laughs> just to, like, fit in and like go up with the flow for a few years um and uh so I kind of started doing that as a sort of young teenager and um, then kind of found my people in like mid and late high school where I was like, oh, okay, I fit in with the goth kids. I fit in with the queer kids. I fit in with, you know, like people who were allowed to have a little bit more flexibility in their gender expression. But it wasn't until I graduated college that I finally started to have language for all this stuff that I was experiencing. And I finally learned that transgender people exist. Um, once I had the language for this, I was like, oh, there we go. Bing, light bulb, that's it. But I hadn't had the, I hadn't been exposed to the language for it before then. And so I think a lot these days about, you know, like things like book bans and people who are like, we can't let the kids find out that these people exist. And it's like, it's not going to change who they are, but it will give them the language to talk to you about who they are. And so that for me, like if I would have had the language for trans folks and gender expansive identities when I was 10, I definitely would have talked to people about that then, but I didn't have that language. So that's a bit of the background. Since it was so tied up into, into spirituality and specifically kind of how the church and the community gave you or tried to force upon you and others like this idea of what it is to be a man or a woman or a person who is following the will of God, how was that like for you in the sense of this discovery or, or or even just starting to think like maybe god's will is not that i am this person but this person instead because i am very curious um just for, from this idea of, of basically the the conception seems to be when you discover or when you kind of come upon this revelation it's sort of like there is a freedom like yes this is what i've always been but was there also kind of fear and doubt because then it's like wait if i'm not this or if i don't have the certainty what else am I wrong about? You know, <laughs> yeah. wrong, wrong in, in quotes, you know, kind of a thing. Right. Right. No, I, I think there's a huge, um, I think a number of people who start to understand either their transness or their queerness more generally. Um, if you've come from a more conservative Christian background, a lot of times that discovery of self and the theological deconstruction work tends to happen at the same time <laughs> for this reason, right? Um, not necessarily for the reason of like, what else am I wrong about? Although that can be part of it. Um, but more like when you start to, <laughs> the thing about a, um, so like the conservative Christian worldview that I grew up in, that was like very much like the eighties and nineties, like that sort of version of like white American Christian Christianity, right? Um, the the whole thing is so built on binaries um, and strict structures and 
this or that thinking um, that it really ends up being set up like a house of cards <laughs> that once you take one piece out of that, suddenly it seems like you have to question everything else. Um, and so when you start to question like, well, I've been taught about biblical masculinity and what it is to be a biblical woman my whole life. And it turns out gender is a hell of a lot more. Can I cuss on this podcast? I didn't even ask. Absolutely. <laughs> gender is a hell of a lot more complicated than that. Um, like once you start thinking about that and you're like, oh, wait, throughout Christian history, there have been like a whole milieu of different ways of being a man or a woman and being a Christian. Suddenly it's like that pulls a card out from the bottom of the house of cards and you start going, well, wait, what about what I believe about X, Y, Z things, right? So I think for a lot of people, those things are connected, which is part of where the fear comes from, from those communities of like, we don't want you thinking about all that stuff because as soon as you start realizing that the world is more complicated, um, this is going to be a problem. <laughs> yeah, we were always warned about the slippery slope, uh -huh. right? And and completely, I feel like that's true, even yeah. though it's, it's very alarmist to say that. Um, and I think- you know, my house of cards fell down and I am still well within God's love mm -hmm. and well plugged into the church, which is yeah. what they always told us we would lose immediately if we questioned it. Right. And that's the thing is, I think like Christianity, the and I'm like speaking from my experience of like white Christian conservatism in the Midwest, <laughs> the <laughs> the threat is always the sort of like shunning or loss of community and loss of family. That is always the threat that if you stop believing like us, we will kick you out and you will lose everything. Mm -hmm. um, that's like, you know, it's not we're we're Minnesota nice here. So we don't say that to your face, but that's the <laughs> implicit understanding. Right. Yeah. Um, and so when I think especially queer and trans people, when we come out because we we've gotten to a point where we can't ignore it anymore. We can't pretend it's not there anymore. And we come out and suddenly we're like, well, yes, some relationships did fall apart. That maybe did happen, but I have this whole other amazing community now that understands and knows me as me. And it turns out all those threats about like, you're going to lose everything. Like it maybe does happen for a little while, but that is not the end of the story, right? And so when you create a structure that is like the threat is always you will lose everything if you leave us, that should be a red flag for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess there is a, you know, my, my as, a, as a, a, a cisgender white man, you know, my deconstruction was more about letting go of this idea of um, sin leads to hell versus, right. you know, following a path leads to heaven. So when you, when you do kind of come out of that and you realize like you, you, you peek your head out of the door and like, okay, I'm not being smote dead. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is all just kind of not, not a lie per se, but maybe like a lot of what we've been told are constructs that have been crafted for us instead of those that in inherently exist within what we believe to be creation and spirituality and that sort of thing. And so right. there is certain the, the freedom, but as deconstruction implies, like, you got to break a lot of stuff down first mm -hmm. and building it back up takes time and effort. Right. But the thing that is then built is so much stronger. Mm -hmm. It's so much stronger than the thing that was kind of like half-heartedly pieced together that you were just inheriting from other people, um, which is not to say that inherited faith is bad. There's a lot of good about it. But, you know, the thing that you end up building because it has been through the fire and has been tested is always going to be stronger and more relevant to your life. Well, it's also like more resilient going forward too, right? It can still be tested. New right. questions come up all the time. And then, but the new thing that you've built can withstand that because right. it, that questioning is part of the foundation of what you built. Right. Um, 
and then layer after layer continues to be stronger. Yeah. And I feel like that's the thing that I hope that people start to understand about gender, right? Like we're getting it with faith, but like to say the same thing is true about gender, that looking at our own experience of gender, testing it, asking questions, moving outside boxes, uh, realizing that the structures that we were told about gender are not actually as like rigid as we thought they were, right? That same thing ends up creating a much stronger sense of self that is not threatened by everybody around you who's doing something different. So I think it's very much the same thing with gender too. And when it comes to this this inherited story or the story that is is being told to us, forced upon us, however you want to frame it, in, in your experience or, or in your opinion, I guess, why do people get so hung up on duality as sort of a, a reality. I mean, you know, you have in, in the book of Genesis, man and woman, he created them. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of darkness is only understood in the absence of light. And yet there's no explanation of like what dawn or what dusk is like, which is a little bit more nuanced, I suppose. But why, why do people get so hung up and specifically when it comes to spirituality on this idea of like, it is this or it is that? And maybe the answer is simple as misogyny and the patriarchy, or maybe that's just one component of it. But like, why, why is that the thing that people like, it's gotta be this way or it's that way. We're, di we're ditching nuance. Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel like there's, there's a lot, I think there are a lot of reasons and that's why it's so strong. There's a yeah. lot of compounding reasons, but I think one of the things that it's okay to recognize is that we as humans with like most, most human brains tend to default to binaries and less taught otherwise. And that's a survival strategy. When you are seeing an animal running towards you, you immediately have to think, is this a tiger or is this my house cat? And is this a danger to me, right? Mm -hmm. You immediately track things. Knee-jerk reactions are about safety. They're all about, is this a danger or is this not a danger? And that's the way your brain works. And so because our brains are not only wired that way a little bit biologically to think about like danger versus not danger, it's very easy for us to get stuck in other kinds of binaries um, and binaries that are taught. So to so we're walking down the street and we see somebody and our brain immediately wants to go, is that a man or a woman, right? And unless we are um, like taught a different way of thinking, that is what we're gonna default toward because it's a taught binary on top of an instinctual binary, right? So I feel like, these sort of ways of thinking are so strong in us because part of it is instinctual and part of it is taught. And it's easier to see the world in a way that is like all all bad people are villains with mustaches and, and big coats and whatever, <laughs> like with knives in an alleyway. And all good people are like saints out feeding the poor on the street. And you should be able to immediately distinguish between those two of them. And then we realize that that's not actually how the world works. Like people who seem very good do terrible things. And people who seem sketchy to us because of our preconceived notions are actually wonderful people. You know, <laughs> we realize that those binaries don't actually hold up to the scrutiny of what real life looks like. So I feel like when we've got a faith um, that is dealing with those human instincts of like wanting to have an immediate reaction, plus the cultural like structures on top of that about how we think about the world. And then on top of that, within Christianity, we have a whole history of binaries um, that are set up because of the worldview of the people that wrote scripture. So we have Paul influenced hugely by the Greek world going hard on the flesh versus spirit dichotomy, right? <laughs> so like we have things like that on top of it as well. So I just think we're like 
hugely primed to think in those binary structures. But then when we look at the world and when we look at the mystery of God and God's work in the world, we realize, well, okay, maybe those structures can be helpful sometimes when we do have to figure out if we're being attacked by a tiger. But for a lot of it, we're actually connecting with something much deeper and much and like beyond humanity when we get outside of those structures, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. I used to go to an Episcopalian church years ago, and one of the most valuable things that I learned from uh, the the rectors there was this idea of um, text without context becomes pretext. Mm. Um, So it's it's I I love that you mentioned that and this idea of how Paul was influenced by the Greek world and where he was writing from and and that sort of thing. and yet this pretext very much, especially when it comes to transgender identities, sexual identities, seems to be a whole lot of pretext going on and not a whole lot of exploration. Because I, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of like a lot of times um, when there are verses quoted at you, at other people, a lot of it seems to come from the Old Testament or mm. they, they really do like kind of quoting the New Testament stuff, but it's the Paul things and so much like, hey, what did Jesus have to say about these things? Mm. And people seem to be eerily silent when it comes to that mm. or forcing a forcing a perspective or a bias on certain words that that jesus said and i'm wondering i mean in your experience is it really just as simple as that as like people are are enforcing a bias that's why they constantly quote from the old testament without kind of thinking about the relationship of the old testament to the new testament about the historical context behind that and all this sort of stuff. There, there's a question in there somewhere. Uh, I'm not sure what it is, but it's mainly just kind of, you know, your experience when it comes to this idea of of pretext versus context and how it seems to be ignored a lot of times for the purposes of this is my point. This is what I'm going to use to support it. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, so the the thing that I my my background um, uh, academically is as an Old Testament scholar. My my um, uh, degree is in Hebrew Bible, and specifically, I think the reason that I went into Hebrew Bible scholarship in seminary was because verses that I had heard used against LGBTQ plus people were usually verses from the Old Testament. Of course, we've got like Romans and there's other things too, but I th- I usually heard um, the sort of verses used from Deuteronomy and Leviticus and things like that um, to kind of as, as the, as the clobber passages. Right. Sure. Um, and I was so fascinated by <clears throat> that because I realized that um, within my relationships with um, Jewish folks, within both conservative and reformed Judaism, they were like, well, yeah, that's like, that's the basis of our scripture, right? Is the Tanakh, is the Hebrew Bible, as Christians understand it. And yet um, within conservative and reform and and uh, reconstructionist movements within Judaism, those are all um, way more trans affirming than Christianity is. So I was like, this doesn't make sense if we're saying like Old Testament God angry, full of laws, New Testament God loving, and um, and that's why you know that's why Christians you know are are so mad about stuff all the time is because they're using those Old Testament passages, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, okay, but if Judaism is working off of the same text and they are more affirming than this, again, binary about Old Testament angry God, New Testament loving God doesn't work. Um, and it doesn't mean that the use of those passages will always lead to a antagonistic relationship with LGBT people and communities. 
So I think for a lot of that, like uh, when I think about these passages and how they work together, I always want to emphasize that like there is nothing inherent in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible that must be seen as transphobic or as queerphobic or used in that way. We have great examples of that within our Jewish siblings and and their relationships. So like that's a whole thing in and of itself. Now, why do we focus as Christians, if we're going to use these clobber passages against people, why do we focus on those? Why do we focus on Paul and not look at the Gospels? Well, I mean, largely because Jesus doesn't ever directly speak to like um, same gender relationships in a like uh, sort of like surface level meaning way. And he doesn't speak about transgender people as we understand them today because that understanding didn't exist at the time. Of course, there were gender expansive people back then. And Jesus does refer to like eunuchs, for instance. Um, but like because there's not a one to one thing, it's very hard to look at any of what Jesus says and try to like plant that on people in today's world. However, having said that, <laughs> So much of the way Jesus interacts with people of different genders in his time is relevant for how we think about we how we interact with people across lines of gender today. So I definitely think there's a lot more we can be saying about um, what acting as followers of Jesus in the world means about how we um, talk with people across lines of gender difference. Um, and I would be very interested to have more of those conversations and less of the having to go over the clobber passages for the 8 millionth time. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure it's an exhausting conversation where it's like, okay, we're going to do this again. Um, let me let me bring out the same talking points. Let me bring out the same context so that I can go through this again and again and again. Um, yeah. But I, I do love the fact that you brought up the the you know, not just the concept of the eunuchs, but also in your book specifically, you talk about the the eunuch character in, in the book of Acts and just how that person specifically, and also um, someone who can, who can be fluid between gender could add something to the church experience, the spiritual experience, a new perspective. And I'm wondering um, to kind of like preempt things, because uh, I'm, I'm this kind of person where like a lot of times I write questions like I, I want to know the answer to this question so that I can use it too as, you know, hopefully as an ally. But this idea of like, how would you respond to someone who might be saying like, well, but what you're talking about is a different experience. A eunuch was an unwilling person in that experience. They had, you know, something happened to them. They have to then respond to it versus you who willingly went through this transition. That's an entirely different thing. Break that down. Destroy that. How is that? A terrible argument. I see D psyched to say something here. <laughs> I was an unwilling participant in being assigned female at birth. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when we talk <laughs> about unwilling participants, like this was something that was put upon me too by a system that was built by humans and is rooted in a binary. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So that's 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 the very beginning of it all. And then Yeah, no, totally agree, D. Like the there's a lot we can say about um the sort of what is put upon us from the second that we are seen on an ultrasound, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and so there's a lot we can say about that and willingness and unwillingness um, as we grow into who we are. I think the other thing is like, I appreciate, I, I don't think that that question, especially when we think about um, the person in Acts 8 or when, we, when Jesus talks about the three kinds of eunuchs in Matthew 19, I don't think that's a bad question to ask as long as we're not using it to like hit people over the head with. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, um, a book called called uh, Trans Faith by Christina, Christina Beardsley and Chris Dowd, who are folks over in the UK, trans folks in the UK. 
Um, they wrote a book called Trans Faith. And in it, they talk about how they are not 100% on board with the idea of connecting trans people today with Unix because they just, essentially their reasoning is, we just don't know enough about them. Um, there, We don't have a ton. We have a lot of information about Unix in like the late Roman Empire through like um, the Middle Ages um, and, and like through the Renaissance. We have a ton of information about Unix in that period. We don't have a ton from like the fall of the first temple through like uh, 50 CE, right? So we don't have a ton of information about them. So we're using the information that we have. A lot of it is, of course, extra biblical information from from uh, history, uh, histories written at that time. And so it's okay to say, you know what? I don't know about this connection. Maybe it doesn't totally make sense to me. That's an okay thing to say um, because of that lack of, of historical information. I wish we had more. But the thing that I would add to that is to say that um, it, when we think about um, like in Matthew 19, when Jesus talks about the three types of eunuchs, he talks about how there are people who are uh, uh, eunuchs at birth. There are people who are made eunuchs by others and people who make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, mm -hmm. right? So when we're talking about this sort of like it happened to me versus I was an active participant, Jesus recognizes that there are different ways of that happening. There are people whose bodies are different from the moment they're born, which today we would say these are intersex people, right? These are our intersex siblings. So Jesus recognizes that. Jesus recognizes that there are people who are made eunuchs by others who didn't have a choice in it, who um, who are, uh, you know, who were people usually assigned male at birth who were castrated usually before puberty, right? And so they grew up without the secondary sex characteristics that we would associate with men. So they looked different. They were like, visually different um, in terms of how they perceive how they were perceived and presented. Um, and then third, there are people who make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, right? And what does that mean? What does it mean to actively be a participant in a changed understanding of gender in the world for good? <laughs> so like there's a recognition there that there are different ways of going about it. I think the other thing that that it makes me think of is there is in the same way that we sometimes talk about side A and side B arguments for people of different orientations, which in like the sort of evangelical world, uh, side A is to say that like it's totally okay to have a relationship, um, like a same gender relationship and, and be gay, and that's totally fine. Side B is to say it's okay if you're attracted to people as long as you don't act on it, as long as you don't have those relationships, right? So that's side A versus side B. And this is the equivalent for trans folks to say – um, it's okay if you are who you are, as long as you don't do anything about it, as long as you don't transition, as long as you don't come out, as long as you don't have any medical procedures or take hormones. That's the side B of transness, right? And when people bring forward this idea of like, well, eunuchs aren't the same because they didn't have any choice in it. It's basically saying, well, okay, you might not have a choice to be a trans person, but we are going to hold you accountable for choices that you make to transition. And those are bad, right? Mm. Like that's usually the direction that's coming from. So I just want to, I always want to kind of say, you know, let's, let's take a second look at that kind of theology and what it does and what it says about how we move in the world. Mm. Yeah. And the, the side B thing is, is so interesting and not in the sense of like, Hmm, but more in the sense of like, wait, where does this come from? Because I, 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 I am wondering, if, in your opinion, like, why do you suppose people get so hung up on these, and I'm putting sins in air quotes, once again, of like, being transgender, of being homosexual, of, or, or, or even of like, having sexual feelings towards someone if you're straight and not acting out on them? Why is there so much of an emphasis on like, 
these seem to be in a hierarchy of sins way up there when something like, well, they're an adulterer, they're a thief, they're a murderer, they're more willing to forgive. And yet these ones, uh, you know, being transgender, about being homosexual, having those feelings, it's like, um, there, there seems to be so much on, on an emphasis and condemnation on them. When, 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 when you think about sin as creating an imbalance between a person and God, or even as something where there is a victim, there are no victims. There's no one externally being hurt. There's no imbalance between the person and God. So yet, why is there so much of, of a focus on a condemnation on these sins versus those ones where there are actually people being hurt? You know, I don't have a great answer for that. I don't think there is a good answer for it. I don't think that there is a good reason that we, because I think people will say, um, if you, if you put it to somebody who was, who saw being trans or who saw, um, being gay or having uh, like being in a relationship with somebody who's the same gender. Like if you ask them about this, they would say, well, I think all sins are the same. Like, you know, all sins are sins and I love the sin and, or I love the hate the sin, love the sin. Right. (laughs) And, And like, that would generally be their response, but that's not how it actually plays out in action. Right. Even if people are telling themselves all sins are the same and whatever, the way the sins that they are focusing on are very much not like the the effort being put in is not the same. So I think it's a good thing to think about and talk about like, why are these the things that we're focusing on so hard? Um, I don't think that they would be the things that we were focusing on so hard if we were not a society that is both um, incredibly repressed and incredibly <laughs> obsessed with sex. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, if absolutely. we were, yeah, if we were in a different kind of society, I don't think that would be the case. Mm-hmm. Well, I also like to point out that like cis people are also harmed by transphobia. Yeah, right? and like men are also harmed by misogyny. Yep, because we've been putting boundaries around things, and sometimes I think that people see other folks who have been liberated, and instead of wanting that for themselves, they just get mad. Yeah. You're like, you're not allowed to do that because I can't do it either. And I'm right. I'm going like, well, why can't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a huge like um, I am just like a huge rah-rah advocate of getting people to think more about their own experience of gender because it means that they don't lash out at people in the same way when they're surprised by somebody who's doing gender differently. So like I just had a really good conversation with somebody a while ago who was like, I feel um, uncomfortable when I see um, f- like people who I read as mass as male, but presenting in more femme ways. And this person is a, is a cis guy. And he's like, I feel uncomfortable when I see this, what do I do about that discomfort? And it's like, well, you have to ask yourself what it is, like what, where that discomfort is coming from. Is it coming from a place where you see them and you're like, I'm worried that, um, that my masculinity is now in question because they're doing masculinity different than me? Am I worried if I'm attracted to them and what that says about my sexuality? Am I like, it always is anytime we see somebody else and we feel like fear or revulsion or something like that, it's usually, it's something within us. That's the problem. It's not the other person that the problem, right? This is a thing that tells us, Oh, I have some internal work I need to do. (laughs) But a lot of people, rather than doing that internal work and that self-reflection act out in anger um, and uh, end up hurting other people because of it. And so it's like, if we could just get, I was telling my partner yesterday, she, I don't know if you, have either of you seen the TV show alone 
where like people just get they get like dropped someplace oh, it's yes. like a survival show oh yeah it's it's a uh it's engrossing and also probably unhealthy to binge but yeah. yes <laughs> <laughs> yes they just like airdrop people in these remote locations and are like oh, trying geez. to survive in the wilderness for a certain amount of time right and so many of the guys that get sent out there that i assume are cis guys um that get sent out there after like 15 or so days they come back and they're just like I did not realize that I was like recreating relationships I had with my dad and I miss my wife. And I didn't know that I cared that people cared about me. They like have all these things. And I'm like, I wish I could drop every cishet guy in the world on an Island by themselves for like 10 days to just be like, think about yourself. <laughs> think about your trauma. <laughs> well, in, because in I think ways, it would do everybody some good. <laughs> in some ways, this is also what happened in the pandemic, right? Everything shut Absolutely. down. Everyone was forced to stay at home. And then yeah. people who are living in perhaps um, relationships that they weren't comfortable in, mm -hmm. but they could distract themselves when the world was open, mm -hmm. had to had to face it yeah. and had to face each other and had to talk about it or like let it explode because there was nothing else. There was nowhere else they could go and they mm -hmm. had to deal with it. And so many uh, relationships fell apart then. But yeah. I also think that there were many people who came out. Yep. During that time as well, because you have to sit in your own thoughts and you're sort of um, no longer expected to follow societal like expectations if we're all staying inside our homes. And so right. what do you do when no one else is watching? Yeah, absolutely. There were so many like they did some really interesting stories about like trans people that came out in the pandemic because they were like, oh, I'm working from home. I can dress whatever way I want that makes me feel comfortable. And suddenly this is telling me things about myself that I didn't really want to think about before, but now I have the space to do that. So yeah, it's like, how do we create more places in our lives for self-reflection? And how do we create more than that? Like, how do we, maybe not more than that, equal to that, how do we create safe spaces to talk about this and process this with each other without being afraid that we are going, like everything's going to crumble. And I know this is kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier about like the, the house of cards with faith sometimes with conservative, like strict uh, understandings of things. But I always want to encourage people that like when it comes to your gender and thinking about what's going on with you internally, um, there is not going to be a point at which somebody else's experience of gender makes your experience irrelevant or Mm. or like mm -hmm. or that like takes something away from you mm -hmm. um and when you look internally and think about your experience with gender um i think some people worry that if they can't base all of it on how their body is structured on what reproductive organs they have then nothing will be there and they'll be like well what a, how can i say i'm a man or a woman if it's not based on this there will be something there you will not be left with a gaping like nothingness there like there are reasons that you know yourself to be the gender that you are that aren't just based on your reproductive organs and if more people felt confident in that then we would have less conflict about it, you know? So I, I I, just, yeah, I'm a huge advocate for more self-reflection and more safe spaces for us to admit that to each other. Yeah, like the, the people who out there are claiming that, you know, their rights are being taken away when actually, no, what's happening is that other people are gaining rights and the only thing being taken away from you is your dichotomous view of a world or your the freedom for you to say certain critical or oppressive things like but no one's saying that like okay well now we're affirming transgender people so now you are forced to be transgender as well like that's not a that's not a world that exists right. um 
No, and, and that's yeah. There's there was something so destabilizing about the pandemic that was basically like it, it existentially shook people to the core. That's like, listen, the way that society is supposed to work, that we've all been told it's supposed to work, that's not happening now. Mm-hmm. So why do I need to act or work as I've been told that I have to work? So one of the questions I wanted to bring forward was is sort of concrete ways that the church can. Um, demonstrate their care and affirmation of trans people, um, even if they're a church that's not openly affirming yet. Like, what can people do um, to show that care? I think that uh, more often than not, like, people just be like, what do I do now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so now I'm asking you, what do we do now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the answer is there's a buffet of options. Um, there's there's lots and lots of things people can do depending on, you know, what's what works in your particular context. Um, I I would say the biggest thing that I would love more churches to be doing right now, um, and just more Christians in general, um, is speaking up about how your faith calls you to affirm, like fully affirm and celebrate and love trans folks. Because there's this huge narrative out there about, you know, Christianity versus trans people and how faith and how like Christians, especially it's like, you know, uh, all of the anti-trans bills that are currently in state legislatures are like created by Christian think tanks um, and like put out there for people to to talk about and, and vote on and put into into action. And so like we need more Christians standing up and saying, actually, as a person of faith, here is how my faith calls me to understand, accept, celebrate, affirm, love, care for transgender people. Um, We need a lot more um, verbalization of that in sort of the public square, that it's not in spite of your faith, it's because of your faith that you are in support, Mm -hmm. right? So that is the major thing that I really want people to do as we're in this place where trans folks are being talked about like six times a day on Fox news, right? Like we need, (laughs) we are a tiny community, but depending on your estimate, we are like 0.7 to 2% of the population. 2% is like the absolute like max. And it's like, if we're being talked about constantly, we don't, we're not big enough to be able to address all those things. Right. So we need people to talk um, positively about us to each other. So that's huge. If you are not in a place um, where you can do that in a public space for whatever reason, there are lots of things that you can do um, that will matter, like writing your legislators. That is not something you have to tell all your neighbors about, but it's very important. Um, uh, Donating and moving money to trans organizations right now is really important because we're struggling to um, take care of trans folks who are responding to these anti-trans bills. Um, I, as the executive director of Transmission Ministry Collective, which is this care org for trans folks online, we're like currently trying to find ways to help people who need to move out of their state because they are losing access to care. Like this has gone beyond, as we always knew it would, it has gone beyond just like, we don't know if we want kids to be able to access transition care. And now it's like adults can't either, right? Like in Missouri right now, it's like, well, just good luck. You're, we're cutting off your hormones. So like, we need help to care for the folks that are being affected by these bills, right? And I know I'm going on a lot about these bills, but it's because it's affecting people's everyday lives in a huge, huge way. So we need the church to get involved in that conversation. And whether it's um, verbally, audibly for everybody to see, or whether it's like I'm making a donation and I'm writing my legislators, like those things are all very important. Um, 
when it comes to like how we treat each other, um, the thing that I always want to encourage people to do interpersonally, like one-on-one, um, is to remember that your care always has to exceed your understanding. There's going to be a point at which your understanding will fail and you'll hit a wall and go, I don't know what that's like for you. Um, but your care has to extend past that limit. Um, it's okay for you to not understand everything and still care for people the way that they are asking to be cared for. For the allies out there, people hoping to be allies, people like myself who, you know, have always been, have always had their gender identity and sex identity sync up from the very beginning. What advice can you give to them when they're trying to keep up with new language, new terminology, new labels? I think there is a lot of time a hesitation and a fear on the part of people who may not ha- who have the caring but may not have the understanding because they're worried about, well, I don't want to mislabel someone. I don't want to offend somebody else. So instead, what I'm going to do is just not take these small little risks. So mm-hmm. if, if there are people out there who are nervous about it, even if that may sound silly to some people, what advice can you give to them? Yeah, I mean, I think the... Um, I think it totally makes sense if you are worried about like, for instance, talking about stuff on social media where a lot of people can see it. I can understand being like, I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong word and people are going to like be mad at me. Right. Um, so don't start with that unless you're feeling, you know, more confident about it. Always start with interpersonal relationships with the folks in your life. Um, and if you're like, well, I don't know anybody who's trans. <laughs> this is a great time to pick up a book by a trans person or watch a documentary. Um, things that like help you understand trans stories, even if you don't know somebody personally. But I can f- bet you that you probably do know some trans folks, even if you don't know that they're trans. Um, and so like talking with people, the best way to think about like, oh, language is changing. How do I keep up? Is to be in relationship with people that are using that language because they'll let you know. They'll be like, actually, and they're not going to be like, if you're friends with these folks, they're not going to be mad at you for using the wrong word. They'll just be like, actually, this is the thing that we're doing now, just so you know, (laughs) you know, Um, being in relationship with people is an antidote to a lot of that fear and shame Um, to to be able to go, well, this is my best friend and they're not going to be mad at me if I use the wrong word. They'll just tell me which one to use instead. Right. Um, So being in relationship, very important. Um, And and yeah, if you're if you're not feeling like I don't know how to keep up, um, make sure that you're taking in like media and stories from trans folks from other places, uh, because you'll get some of that inside info on like how the language is changing. Um, there's always conversations. Like I remember, oh gosh, almost 10 years ago now when there was all that conversation about whether we use the asterisk after trans, whether it's like trans asterisk and whether or not to use that. That was a huge inter-community conversation about like some people like it, some people don't, right? It's the same thing like for me, um, if I'm working in solidarity with um, people who are disabled, right? The language around disability is changing all the time. Do we say disabled people? Do we say people with disabilities? Do we talk about how they are disabled by our society? Do we talk about the internal things that they, uh, their own like theology and how they understand how that works for them? So I'm not constantly keeping up with all of that, but I'm in relationship with people who will be like, oh, just so you know, this is a thing that changed recently, you know, Mm -hmm. and that will really help. I think part of it is also going into it, knowing you're going to get stuff wrong. Yeah. Mm. That is a really hard place to be in. And I, I recognize that I say that very simply, but you will get things wrong. And, and, and I ask people to be willing to be uncomfortable mm. when they mm. are corrected. Mm-hmm. Right. And I will do my best to 
gently correct mm-hmm. um, instead of like, you know, flipping out on you or something. Right. Um, but and, and that again, that's a very hard thing to ask of people to be uncomfortable, especially mm-hmm. people who um, who are in the majority, right? Yeah. Especially cis people, especially white people, especially mm-hmm. whatever duality you want to put in place there. Mm-hmm. Folks who have always been comfortable now are being asked to be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to realize that that discomfort is not a sign that you are bad. Cause I know mm. like, I don't know if you're into the Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram one in any sense of like, I've done something wrong means I'm a terrible person. <laughs> um, right. Like it, that's not what it means to make a mistake. It's okay to make a mistake and learn from it. The discomfort means you are growing. Mm. Um, so like discomfort is actually a sign of a good thing. It's not a sign that you did something wrong. Or that you yourself are, are terrible to the core. Exactly. Now that is, that is a valuable lesson to learn and one that I have to kind of keep learning, um, you know, that perfect is not the enemy of good necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and just this idea of like, we are, we are going to make mistakes, but as part of the growing process, as someone who now has a, a child who is approaching six months, like there's going to be a lot of times I'm going to make a mistake mm-hmm. and I'm going to question like, did I raise him right? And it's like, mm-hmm. did, you know, my, my therapist likes to say like, you just got to be good enough. You just got to do like 60%. <laughs> And and that's what you got to be, and that's what you got to concern yourself with. But this idea, D, I love that thought of like you, you gotta, you gotta be comfortable with being uncomfortable, which is when you are part of that like white cisgender male who has had the power for throughout history. It's like mm, that's not a that's not a familiar position to be in. Uh, yeah, in my more petty moments, I have to point out to people that I am uncomfortable regularly. Mm-hmm. Like you yep. may be using the wrong word sometimes, but I get misgendered constantly yeah. and I have to hear it day in and day out. And like, you know, walking through the world and being worried about which bathroom to use mm-hmm. um, and like trying to go get a haircut and wondering if the the stylist is going to, you know, give me what I want. Mm-hmm. Like these are everyday discomforts that I just have to deal with and are part of my life. So like suck it up. yeah i definitely feel that some days (laughs) yeah Um, well austin like i said uh a reminder to people the book is transforming the bible and the lives of transgender christians the one final question i kind of wanted to to wrap up with is so it's actually a second edition of your book which just came out um so there has been a first edition out for for a little bit um i'm wondering i mean we've talked about and you've mentioned it just there are bills out there, anti-trans bills in all sorts of conservative states. Um, but I, I'm wondering also from a, a hopeful and encouraging, a progressive perspective, what have you seen change between the first edition and your second edition now, specifically when it comes to the church and spirituality? What, what out there is moving in the right direction? Mm, yeah. I mean, in general, I think this is one of those weird things where um, – uh, it's true with a lot of legislation right now that the legislation that is being put forward and passed is not actually representative of the majority of people. It's being mm-hmm. passed by a very, very loud and passionate minority. <laughs> um, and and so when I think about like how things have changed, yes, we are experiencing this huge blowback right now. Um, and in some ways it's easy to look at it and go, things are worse than they were in 2018 when I first wrote the the first edition, right? It's easy to, and, and I, and I think it would be accurate to say on a legislative scale, things are worse now, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but 
um, in the on the ground grassroots sense of things, I do believe that they're getting better. And the what, the reason that I think that is because when I go to churches now, when I, I I do a lot of church education work, and when I was going around to churches in like 2016, 17, 18, and doing this work, um, they were still like even the churches that were fairly fairly far forward in talking about affirmation in general still weren't really sure what to do they didn't really know how to talk about things like the in general it was like even if they were pretty far forward on a lot of other issues this was one that they just were like we don't know what to do here and now when i go to churches of course there are still churches that are, need that 101 work absolutely more and more churches every day, which is a good thing that we're bringing more and more folks along on this journey. But now when I go to more churches that are more progressive on a lot of these other issues, they are thinking very creatively about how to support trans folks. Um, so like I, I went to a church down in Dallas a couple of months ago and they're like, oh yeah, well, we had this extra room in our church building that we weren't using. So we've changed, we turned it into a closed closet for trans folks that like people come and donate stuff and you can get like a whole new wardrobe for free. Right. Hmm. They were oh, like, well, we just, yeah, yeah. they were like, we have an extra room. Why not? They were like, uh, we have, um, a bunch of retired lawyers in our congregation. So they're doing pro bono work to help people get their gender markers changed. Like just the, just like they're thinking creatively about what they can do. And even though we may still have to have these one-on-one conversations with folks that are just learning for the first time, which is great and fine, we are also now able to go, how are we responding creatively to this? Um, and more and more churches are getting to that point. So it's like the sea change that's slowly happening where we're getting a, a rise in the number of churches that are starting to talk about it. And then the churches that started talking about it in 2018 are now at a whole nother level of action. And that's really great. So yeah, even though sometimes when you look at it from like the 10,000 foot view or whatever, you're like, oh, things are worse. When you get down on the ground and start talking with folks and little communities, um, you know, the the tiny Catholic churches that are doing cool things, even though their bishop is going to be mad if they find out, you know, like <laughs> there are churches like that that are doing amazing things that make me really hopeful. Well, Austin, thank you so much for, I mean, the book, for giving your time for telling your story um i hope that you know there uh if there are allies out there who are listening that they are a little bit well equipped now to be better allies and if there are people out there who you know their story or your story is inspirational to them then that's that's absolutely great and i'm, I'm going to give you just a a moment too just when you sign off like plug anything you want your book the ministry that you're a part of i i just you know, whatever kind of helps people out there kind of on their own journey, I want them to hear about it from you. For sure. Yeah. Gosh, what's some good stuff I can plug? Well, first I'll, I'll start off by plugging TMC, um, which is the community that I um, am the executive director of where um, you can find us at transmissionministry.com. Um, and basically we're an online support org for trans Christians. And so we have support groups and workshops and Bible studies and a server and all kinds of stuff, chat server. Um, so if you're a trans Christian or you're like exploring that and like you don't know if you're trans, but you're in, you think you might be, <laughs> um, we are happy to to chat with you and have you as part of the group. Um, so go check that out. Um, and if you want to donate to keep that work going, because we don't charge for any of the stuff that we do, you can go donate at transmissionministry.com as well. So that's one thing. I think another thing, um, since we're talking about books um, and we're talking about like reflecting on our own gender, um, this is a book that I, this is not like a paid plug. It's just a book that I love. Um, there's a book called How to Understand Your Gender 
by Alex Ian Taffy and Meg John Barker. Um, and that book is one that I want to recommend to every person in the country. I want to just be like, <laughs> here, read this. Um, because it's a great walkthrough of like how gender works, how it lives out in our lives. And I think like, especially if you're a cis person, it's helpful to have a guide for how to think it through a little bit more. Cause you're like, I don't even know what questions to ask. So I would just tell everybody to go get that book and read it. Cause it's great. 